As I said in the email and in my opening announcements this evening, Ascension Day is greatly underplayed, underappreciated, underrated. Uh, the Ascension does not get the attention it deserves. It ought to be a big celebration, much bigger than it is. Uh, I know we don't send cards or give gifts for Ascension, but what about a big fireworks show? How would that be? Would that be a good way to celebrate the Ascension or maybe a laser light show, something like that? Uh, I thought about maybe a barbecue of sorts, maybe a barbecue competition since the smoke ascends from the grill. Okay, you know, work with me here, work with me. Uh, I've been thinking for years about ways to spice up Ascension Day. Uh, maybe we could uh, put some deacons in charge of that or get a committee formed or something uh, to figure out how to make Ascension a bigger celebration. Uh, I fully realize the problem here, why we have a hard time with Ascension. It's just a weird event. You know, Christmas has got a baby. Easter's got a resurrection from the dead. Those are things that, uh, while they're um, amazing in their own right, the incarnation and the resurrection, they're not as weird as the Ascension, I suppose. What exactly happened at the Ascension? We know it's a real historical events, event, but how did Jesus get from earth to heaven? Did Jesus become the first astronaut, the first space traveler? Uh, where exactly is heaven anyway? To say he went to heaven, what does that mean? Where did he go? Those are certainly interesting questions, but the key to the ascension is not so much geography as it is theology. It's not just where is Jesus located now, but what does it mean? And while there's a lot of mystery about where heaven is and how Jesus got from here to there, what is not mysterious, what is very clear is what it all means, it means this. Jesus really did enter heaven. He really did take his seat at God's right hand. And the significance of it is this. It is his enthronement. It marks the beginning of his kingship. It is his coronation. The ascension means he is king. He now reigns as the glorified God-man over all. See, during Easter, we are accustomed to shouting out, Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. Perhaps on Ascension Day, we should shout out, Christ is king, Christ is king indeed. Christ has been enthroned, Christ has been enthroned indeed. Because that's really what the ascension is all about. It is about his kingship, his coronation, his enthronement. The ascension means that a man made of the dust of the earth now sits on heaven's throne. That's the meaning of the ascension. He is the first man to fully enter heaven, to fulfill the destiny God intended for man from the beginning. One of us is seated on the throne of heaven. One of us sits on the very throne of of God. The ascension means Jesus is the first in. He is a pioneer who opens up a new and living way for us into the very presence of God. His ascension completes the purpose of his descent. You could say his ascension completes the reason for his descent as he came from, from heaven to earth and now returns from earth to heaven. The ascension completes the mission he came to earth to accomplish. He came to earth from he came to earth from heaven as a man. He goes back up to heaven now as a glorified man. That's the meaning of the ascension. He descended to suffer and die. He ascended to rule and subdue. The ascension is what you might call a big deal, and I think it deserves a big celebration. 
Uh, the ascension was foreshadowed in the Old Testament in all kinds of ways. One of those opening hymns we sang, See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph, really alludes to various ways in which the Old Testament previewed the ascension. Here are some of those, some in that hymn, some not. On day two of the creation week, when the earth was covered with water, God took some of that water up to heaven with him to form a watery barrier between heaven and earth, the heavenly ocean that you see later on in scripture. That was the first ascension, and it was a sign of things to come. It revealed to us from the very beginning, from the first page of the Bible, God's ultimate purpose to bridge heaven and earth, to join heaven and earth. In the book of Leviticus, the ascension offering is the first sacrifice described and it highlights how the worshiper ascends in his representative the sacrificial animal how the worshiper ascends into the heavens as smoke he enters into the glory cloud of God that's what happens to the animal represents what's happening to the worshiper there are many references to the ascension in the Psalter. It's all over the place in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 47, which says God has ascended with a shout and with the sound of a trumpet. That psalm is celebrating God being enthroned over the nations as king. And it talks about it in terms of his ascension. Psalm 68 is a prophecy of the ascension. Psalm 24, which we sang, and Psalm 110 have ascension themes in them. Ascension is all over the Old Testament. Enoch in some way ascended, Elijah in some way ascended. The prophet Daniel had a vision of the ascension, he has a vision of the future, where in Daniel chapter 7 he sees one like the Son of Man ascending to the Ancient of Days. And this one like the Son of Man enters into heaven and begins to rule, taming the beastly empires, just like Adam in the garden ruled over the beasts. So this Son of Man rules over the beasts, now those beasts representing empires. He takes dominion over them. The Old Testament is full of events that take place on mountains, which are symbolic ascensions. As you go up the mountain, it's like you are ascending. In fact, in the book of Psalms, you've got the Psalms of ascent that they would sing as they ascended the mountain on their way to the temple, which was, of course, on the top of a mountain. You've got other symbolic mountain ascensions like Moses going up on Mount Sinai to get the ten words or to receive the blueprint for the tabernacle because the tabernacle will be an earthly copy, an earthly replica of that heavenly original. Or think about Exodus 24 where 70 elders go with Moses and they ascend the mountain to eat a meal in God's presence. It's a heavenly banquet a heavenly feast. They ascend in order to feast together in God's presence. And on and on we could go. The Old Testament is chock full of ascension previews. It's like one big movie trailer previewing coming attractions and the ascension is right at the heart of that. We get these previews of the ascension ahead of time. As you might expect, the New Testament is full of ascension references as well, though now, obviously, as an event fulfilled in Christ's entrance into heaven and his enthronement in heaven. Mark, Luke, and John all end their Gospels with very clear references to the ascension of Jesus. The story that Acts tells, the story told in the book of Acts, opens with Jesus' ascension as he mysteriously rides this glory cloud up into the place and presence of God as he vanishes from the sight of the disciples uh, on his journey into heaven. In John's gospel, the ascension is presented as the very reason for his coming. 
And you see this again and again. John has so much to say about the ascension in his gospel. In John 18, 37, Jesus is standing before Pilate and he says, You say I am a king rightly. To this end I was born and for this reason I came into the world. In other words, I came into this world. I descended into this world to suffer and die that I might ascend into heaven and rule as a king. Further, in John's gospel, John emphasizes the ascension as his triumphant return to the Father. John chapter 13 describes his ascension as returning to the Father from whom he came. So there's this going from the Father and then it's coming back. He's been sent from the Father, sent by the Father, and he will return to the Father. In John's gospel, still further, the ascension is connected with Jesus' ongoing ministry on our behalf. And so he ascends into heaven that he might prepare a place for us. He goes so that the spirit might come. In the upper room discourse, the ascension is a major theme, and it's always tied to these kinds of things. How his going away is not bad news, it's part of the good news. He goes to prepare a place for us. He goes so that the spirit might come. And he's going to be with us through his Holy Spirit even after the ascension. The Apostle Paul sprinkles his letters with references to the ascension all over the place. Uh, many times these, uh, these references to the ascension are in passing. You've got to be thinking about it and looking for it to really notice that they're there. Take, for example, Romans 8.34, that triumphant, glorious end of Romans chapter 8 where Paul gives us the greatest assurance possible. In Romans 8.34, he says, Who can condemn us? For Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Whenever you see a reference to Jesus at the right hand of God or Jesus acting in heaven on our behalf to intercede for us, those are references to his ascension and what his ascension accomplished. So Paul there is saying, nothing can stand against us. No charge can be brought against us. We cannot be condemned. Why? Because Jesus ascended for us. He's at God's right hand interceding for us. According to Ephesians chapter 4, the ascended Christ is foundational to the church because in ascending, Christ gave gifts to his church in the form of apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers. Christ goes up and the gifts come down. He ascends that he might build his church from on high. The book of Hebrews emphasizes the ascension perhaps more than any other book. In Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is described as our great high priest who passes through the heavens. In Hebrews chapter 6, he is our forerunner who has entered the holy place behind the curtain. He's gone into the most holy place for us to be an anchor of hope for us there. In chapter 7, he is the one who is seated in the heavens to intercede for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's continually praying for us at God's right hand. In chapter Chapter 9, we are told he appears in the presence of God on our behalf, again, to plead his once and for all sacrifice for our sake. In chapter 10, he's opened up a new and living way for us into the heavenly most holy place. We can, we can ascend, we can enter the most holy place because Jesus has gone there ahead of us. He's opened up this new and living way for us. On and on we could go. That's just giving you a very small taste. The New Testament traces the journey of Jesus from the pre-creation glory he shared with the Father to his descent to earth to suffer and die on the cross to his return to the Father now as the glorified God-man seated at his right hand in the heavenlies. Jesus' descent makes no sense unless it leads to and is matched by his ascent. You can't make sense out of Christmas without the ascension. 
You can't make sense out of why Jesus came from heaven unless you understand his return to heaven. The story is just not finished. The gospel story is not complete without the ascension. Ascension was always God's plan for man. God always intended to exalt and glorify man so that we would rule over earth from heaven so that heaven and earth could become one. He always intended to heavenize the earth and to put human flesh on his heavenly throne. C.S. Lewis captures this so well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the uh, opening book of Chronicles of Narnia. There in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have the thrones at Ker Paravel that are set up for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. That's the whole point. God has built a throne and God intended for humans to sit on the throne of the universe, for humanity to share in his heavenly rule over earth. In the ascension, that gets fulfilled. In the ascension, that design is fulfilled. The ascension means Jesus is king. The ascension means we have a friend in high places. The ascension is good news. The ascension means heaven has been opened. One of my favorite passages on the ascension is the one that we read from tonight from Ephesians chapter 1. And I want us to look at this passage a little more closely because it ties so many of these themes together. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul's reference to the ascension is actually embedded in a prayer. So in order to give you the the context for Paul's reference to the ascension, I want us to look at this prayer. I'll give you an overview of this whole prayer and you can see how the ascension fits into it and really comes at the climax of this prayer. Uh, So Paul's praying for the Ephesians here. And in that prayer, he makes reference to Jesus' ascension. And I'll tell you this, the prayers of Paul in his letters, you know, this is one, he prays again in this letter in chapter 3. Other letters of Paul include prayers as well. The prayers of Paul in his letters are so, so important. Paul not only preaches the gospel, Paul prays the gospel. Paul turns the gospel into prayer. Uh, I love reading Paul's prayers and his letters for the churches he's writing to because they reveal so much. You can learn so much about Paul's heart, uh, Paul's love for the people. He is a model pastor praying for the flock. I would say you can learn just as much from Paul's prayers as you can from his preaching, just as much from the prayers he wrote as from anything else he wrote. And this prayer is no exception. He begins this prayer by giving thanks for the Ephesians. He gives thanks thanks specifically for their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints. Faith in Jesus and love for the saints go together. If you trust in God, you will love his people. Those things are joined together. But we might ask, why does Paul thank God for their faith and their love? Why not thank the Ephesians themselves? It's their faith, their love, after all, right? And I suppose he could have done that in a way, but he doesn't. He thanks God. Why? Well, to put it in modern terms, we could say it's because Paul's a Calvinist. Paul believes in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And he knows these are gifts God gives and works in his people. If they have faith, that's because God has given it. If they have love, that's because God has worked it in them. In fact, in the very next chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to say, your faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So yes, he's going to thank God for their faith and their love because these are gifts that come from God. 
Then in verse 17, he prays that the God of the Lord Jesus would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is really a Trinitarian prayer. Paul is praying to the Father of the Son, Jesus, that he would give them the spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That God would give them the spirit in such a way that their wisdom would increase. That spirit of wisdom is most obviously, a, very obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul wants the Ephesians to grow in wisdom. He wants them to increase in discernment and insight. And he knows only God can give them these things. He wants them to have wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the sum total of the skills and competence needed for practical obedience to God amidst the complexities of life. That's wisdom. More than that, wisdom is seeing God's way of salvation through the cross. Paul calls the cross the wisdom of God. Had you been standing at the foot of the cross in 30 AD when Jesus died, you would not, looked up at, uh, you would not have looked up at that naked man hanging on the middle cross and say, aha, this is the salvation of the world. This is how the kingdom of God and the renewal of all things comes into the world. You would not have seen that. It takes wisdom to see the cross as the salvation of God. Paul is praying that they would have that wisdom, that they would know the cross is the wisdom of God. And I think that fits well with the other word he uses there. He wants them to have wisdom, a spirit of wisdom, wisdom that comes from the spirit, and he wants them to have revelation. The word here is apocalypse, uh, is, is an English word, word we get from what Paul says here. And it's a word that means to expose or unveil. Sometimes we use apocalypse to talk about a really bad thing, like it was an apocalyptic earthquake or an apocalyptic pandemic. That's not really the way the word's used in the Bible. In the Bible, it's used to describe an unveiling or when something is opened up, when it is uh, exposed. Paul wants us to open up to God. He wants the Ephesians to open up to God. And he wants God to open up to the Ephesians. He wants God to unveil himself for the Ephesians so they can know God more fully. He wants God to be more and more unveiled to them. So as verse 18 says, the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and they would know more fully the hope of their calling. Here Paul shifts to the future. This is a future-oriented enlightenment. It's tied to hope. He wants them to have this hope. They've got faith. They've got love. He wants them to have hope as well. Paul wants them to know their future, their destiny, where they are headed in Christ Jesus. God called them in the past and he gave them hope for the future. And this past calling and this future hope sustain their present faithfulness. That's how this works. That's what Paul is praying for. He wants them to know the calling they've received and this hope that they now have. Uh, the, the end of verse 18 describes this hope as the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And this is really interesting. What is Paul praying for here? What does he want them to know? Well, the way this is worded, it's actually kind of ambiguous. It could be our inheritance, that is, the saints' inheritance, that is to say, the future riches and glory that God has promised to his people. And of course, in order to inherit something, there has to be a death. In order for an inheritance to be passed along, there has to be a death. Well, God's son has died. Jesus died on the cross, so this inheritance in the new creation could become ours. So these riches and this glory could become ours. Jesus died to guarantee our place in the new creation. 
That's part of what's being prayed for here, possibly. I actually think it's more preferable, though, to read it another way, to read it this way. Grammatically, I think it makes more sense this way. The saints here are actually God's inheritance. It speaks of his inheritance. This is a description of God's glorious inheritance. God's glorious inheritance is his people. It's interesting, there are a lot of Old Testament passages that speak this way, that describe the saints as God's heritage or God's inheritance. That would seem to be what's going on here. And so the idea is that we are so valuable to God, God so treasures us that he counts us as his inheritance. God will reward himself at the last day with us, with a perfected and glorified church. That is God's inheritance. God has claimed us. God has made us his own. God promises to perfect us. We are God's reward. All the work that God does in creating and redeeming the world leads to a reward for God. And what is that reward? It's you and me. It is a redeemed people, a redeemed church at the last day. And so what Paul's saying here is he's praying that the Ephesians would come to know that God's people are his most prized possession. Paul doesn't use the word love here to describe God, but that's really what he's talking about here, the love of God for his people, the immeasurable love that God has for his own. Paul prays that we would know that love, that we would know how we are loved by God, that we are his beloved, that God loves us in such a way that he has made us his treasure, his inheritance. That's how God views us. But Paul's not done. He's not done with his prayer here. There are more things he wants them to know. He's kind of, it's like he's working through a prayer list for them. And so he comes to the next thing on his list as he's praying for them. It's not just that he wants them to know God's love. He also wants them to know God's power. If the death of Jesus especially reveals God's love for us, the resurrection especially reveals God's power in us. And so verse 19, Paul wants them to know the exceeding greatness of his power towards believers or for believers according to the working of his mighty power. It's actually a really hard sentence to read. I notice this every time somebody reads this passage out loud. I know it's almost like you want to stumble over the words because it seems so repetitive. Paul stacks up a bunch of words here that describe God's power. These are all power words. Paul's got a very rich vocabulary that he draws on here. uh, And and a variety of Greek words uh, get translated different ways here. But every single one of them basically describes power in one way or another. One of the Greek words he uses is dunamis. We get the word dynamic or dynamite from that word. So God's dynamite. He uses the word energia. We obviously get the word energy from that word. So he's talking about God's energy at work in us. He uses the word kratos. Uh, We've got a lot of political words that have come over to us that uh, make use of kratos, that, that Greek term. Words like monarchy or democracy. Words ending in kratsi are picking up on that Greek word kratos. And so autocracy, aristocracy, bureaucracy, all those kinds of words, they all use this word that Paul uses here that describes authority, power, might, strength, And then he uses one other word, a fourth term, iscus. Now, there are no English derivatives that I know of from iscus. But this is another word that describes might, strength, the capacity to get things done, the capacity to do what needs to be done. So Paul stacks up all of these terms. 
Paul stacks up all of these different terms for God's power at work in us. Uh, If you wanted to translate the text a little more loosely, this is what Paul says in his prayer. I pray that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power, which is according to the powerful working of his powerful power. Okay, that's basically what Paul says. Power, 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 power. It is shockingly redundant. You might even say absurdly or ridiculously redundant, except for this fact. Except for this. Paul knows it is really hard for us to grasp this power. And that's why he stacks up all these words. That's why he's so redundant, because he wants us to know this power and really know it. What is this power? How does Paul describe it? This is the power behind Christ's resurrection. This is the power that powered Christ's resurrection from the dead. What kind of power does it take to raise a dead man and bring him back to life? How much horsepower does it take? How much power does it take to raise the dead? We can't comprehend that kind of power. We don't have a way to calculate that kind of power. The analogy scripture gives us for that kind of power to raise the dead, the only analogy scripture gives us really, is the creation of the world from nothing. That's the kind of power it takes to raise the dead. That's the kind of power that raised Jesus. His resurrection is a kind of new creation. That's the kind of power at work. Paul says, that power that raised Jesus, same kind of power that created the world, that's the power at work in you. But this power not only raised Jesus, Paul says, this is the power behind the ascension as well. Now again, I don't know what kind of power it takes to lift a man up into the heavens. I don't know what kind of power it takes to translate a man from this earth to the heavenly throne room. I can't calculate that kind of power. I don't know what kind of power you'd have to have behind a spaceship to get it there. I don't even think that's the right way to think about it. But that's the kind of power we're talking about, the power that got Jesus from this earth into the heavenly throne room. This power, this power that is behind the ascension, this power that put Jesus at God's right hand. This power, Paul says, that that caused Jesus' ascension, that brought about Jesus' ascension, that's the power at work in you. And further, one more dimension of this, this is the power, Paul says, that drives the the growth of Christ's kingdom, the growth of Christ's church. This is the power that secures the victory of Christ over his enemies. This is the power that powers the growth of the kingdom. This is the power that exalts Christ above all earthly powers, all might and dominion and every name that is named. It's a greater power than any other power we know, any other power we're familiar with. This is the power that is putting all things under Jesus' feet. This is the power that made him head over all things for the sake of his church. That's the kind of power we're talking about. This power, Paul says, is at work for us and in us. And that power is what we celebrate on Ascension Day. That power. Because the Ascension celebrates Christ's enthronement, his rule, his reign over all things, the the growth of his kingdom, the growth of his reign. That power, the power that drives all of that, that is the power we are celebrating. Now let me wrap this up with a couple of implications of this, one personal and one political. At the personal level, there is nothing more comforting than knowing this power is on our side. 
There's nothing more comforting than knowing that this power is for us, that this same power behind the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is for you. The same power that raised Jesus and the same power that carried Jesus into heaven, that power is for you. What does it matter who is against you if that kind of power is for you? It doesn't matter who's against you. Nothing can stand in the way of that power. Any power against you is far less powerful than the power that is for you. That's what Paul is saying. So we as God's people don't need to live scared. We can live lives of confidence. We don't need to live lives full of fear and doubt. God wants us to live confident, confident in this power. In fact, you could argue that if you move into chapter 2, Paul is unpacking what this power means for us in our personal lives and in our salvation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, if you just keep on reading, he says, once we were dead in sins and trespasses. Once we were objects of God's wrath, we were under God's wrath without hope. Utterly helpless, unable to do anything on our own. We were dead in our sins, but, Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God made us alive. That is to say, his power raised us from the dead. We were spiritually dead, and now God has made us alive. There's a resurrection power that brought you to life, that made you a sharer in the new resurrection life of Christ. God has created life out of death. You were dead in sins and trespasses. Now you're alive in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but if you keep reading in Ephesians 2, we have ascended. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, he raised us up together and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We once were dead in our sin, totally depraved, helpless, but now we have been co-resurrected and co-ascended with Christ, and so we co-reign with him. We are seated in the heavenlies in some mysterious, mystical way as well. And this means a lot of different things. You go a lot of different directions with this, but let me just say this. What this means is you are not ever stuck in your sins. You're not ever powerless. You're never such a, if you're in Christ, you are never such a slave to an addiction or a sin pattern that you can't break free from it. You are never stuck in your sins. You know, a really powerful vehicle never gets stuck in the mud. It's always got power to keep going. Well, we are a really powerful people. There's no reason for us to ever think we're stuck in the mud of our sin. We've always got the power to, to get free. That's how Charles Spurgeon put it. I think it's so helpful. He said, all the powers of darkness fought against the Lord Jesus Christ, but through the power of God, he conquered them all. So, my brothers and sisters, you will be opposed by the powers of darkness and by your own evil heart, but you shall conquer. For God will put forth the same power in you which he manifested in his dear son. I see the Lord Jesus entering the pearly gates and climbing to his throne. There he sits and none can bring him down. And you too, believing in Jesus, shall have the same power to tread down all your foes, your sins, your temptations, till you shall rise and sit where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And then listen to this. This is what Spurgeon goes on to say. It's so important. The very same power which raised Christ is, is waiting to raise the drunk 
from his drunkenness, to raise the thief from his dishonesty, to raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, and to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. God has power among the sons of men, and this power he puts forth in making them to be a people that shall show forth his praise. Oh, that you knew what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, because then you would fling away all despair. God will work in you, be willing to be worked upon. I think that's beautiful. That's such a good summary. We are never stuck in our sins. We always have the power to break free, to live a new kind of life, a life of obedience and freedom and righteousness in Christ. But the power of the ascension for our personal lives is not the end of it. In fact, I would say at the very end of Ephesians chapter 1, what Paul really focuses on are the political, or you could even say cosmic aspects of this power, the political, even cosmic power of the ascension. And we've got to see this too. We might be more at home than the other, but we need to see this one too. And here Paul echoes several Old Testament passages like Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 to help us understand the scope of Christ's reign, the scope of the power behind his, his reign. Paul uses the language of Christ ruling and filling in verses 21 to 23. He's got, he speaks of Christ having dominion, and he speaks of Christ filling all things. Now, ruling and filling, what does that language remind you of? Of course, that takes us back to the creation mandate of Genesis chapter 1, where God blesses humanity and says, rule the earth and have dominion over it and subdue it and fill the earth, multiply until the earth is filled completely with image bearers reflecting God's glory back to him. That's God's original design for the, create, for, for, for the human race, that we would have dominion and put all things under our feet, that we would multiply and fill the earth. Of course, we know the first Adam forfeited that mission when he sinned, so it could no longer be fulfilled righteously. And so it now comes to fulfillment in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. But note here, he doesn't do it alone. He rules and fills the earth with and through his bride, the church. Every king needs a queen, and Jesus' queen is his church. And so verse 21 says that Christ has all dominion. That is to say, he fulfills the dominion mandate of Genesis 1. Verse 23 says he fills all in all. He fulfills the multiplication mandate of Genesis chapter 1, filling the earth. But again, he accomplishes, accomplishes this through his church which Paul describes here as his body. Later in chapter 5, he'll describe the church as Jesus' bride. So through his body and through his bride, Jesus fulfills this original mission, the original mission given to Adam and Eve to build a God-glorifying civilization that covers the earth is now fulfilled in Christ and his church. That's our mission. That's what human life is all about, this God-glorifying civilization ruling and filling in the right way in Christ Jesus. It's accomplished by Christ and his church. Now, sadly, unfortunately, many Christians today don't see this. They've got a privatized faith. They can't see how Jesus relates to the public square in any way, how Jesus relates to public life or political life. Why, think about this, why do so many Christians think we are waiting on Jesus to become king at some future date? as if his kingdom has been postponed. There are a lot of Christians who believe that. Why? Well, I would say at least in part, it's because we ignore the ascension. It's because so few Christians celebrate Ascension Day. 
I mean, if you pretend that there never was a coronation, I suppose you can pretend that there is no king. But Paul's whole point here is that there has been a coronation. There has been an ascension to a throne. It has happened. Jesus reigns right now. And so Paul says all things are being put under his feet. All principalities and powers are being put under his feet. His enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. The whole cosmos is being reordered and restructured under his headship, under his lordship. Verse 22 says he is head over all things for the sake of his church. He rules the whole universe for the good of his church, for the well-being of his body and bride. That's what Paul is saying here. He is head over not just the church, but over all things for the good of his church. This means obviously then that his headship cannot be confined to the church. It's not like you can put the headship of Jesus or the lordship of Jesus or the reign of Jesus in a box called the church and confine it to that. Now again, some people will say, well, what about separation of church and state? We have separation of church and state in America, so that means you cannot bring your religious convictions into politics. You cannot bring the Bible into the public square. You cannot tell us what Jesus thinks in the public square because we have separation of church and state. Well, the ascension disproves all of that. And the ascension means that the greatest power in the cosmos, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and that lifted Jesus up to the heavenly throne room, that power is on our side. So we can say, yeah, sure, church and state, they're distinct institutions. Each of these institutions, church and state, have their own role to play, their own domains, their own jurisdictions. But Christ is head over all things. Christ reigns over both of these institutions because Christ reigns over everything. Of course he rules over the state every bit as much as the church because he's head over all things for the sake of his church. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch reformed theologian, said there is not one square inch of the universe that Christ does not claim as his own and say mine. Every square inch of the universe is his and is under his lordship. J. Gresham Machen, great Presbyterian theologian, said this, the supremacy of Christ's dominion reaches beyond individual salvation. It encompasses every sphere of society, transforming all of culture and every institution. And of course that includes the state, every bit as much as it includes the school and the family and art and music and business. Christ reigns over all of it. Who is king of the world right now? Jesus is king. Jesus is king indeed. Oh, it's true, America has a president and a Congress and a Supreme Court. But you know what else America has? America has a king. America has a king over all of these. Our civil rulers are under Jesus' feet. They are lesser magistrates compared to King Jesus. Who rules the world right now? It's not Satan. Satan's head has been crushed. Jesus has been made head over all. Satan's head is crushed. He's not the one running things. Jesus is head over everything. That's what Paul says. And so America, like every other nation on the face of the world, is a Christocracy. We are under the lordship of Christ. And if we are not faithful to Christ and obedient to Christ, well, what will Christ do? Scripture is full of warnings, not just for individuals, but for nations, for cultures, for societies. The whole cosmos is a Christocracy. 
The whole cosmos owes its allegiance to Jesus. The whole cosmos must kneel before King Jesus. Jesus is not like the British monarch, a mere symbol, a figurehead. No, he really does rule the cosmos. He really is head over all things. He is ruling and reigning over all. Christ's ascension is the proof. Christ's reign has to shape not only how we think about our personal lives, it's got to shape how we think about society and history and the public square. If you want to know why America is in the condition it is, I mean, we, every day, you know, we hear some new perversity that is now the thing. We constantly see our nation, it seems, coming under greater and greater spiritual darkness. If you want to know why America is in the condition it's in, this is why. It's because we don't celebrate Ascension Day. That's why. And if we want to change the narrative, if we want to disciple our nation, we have got to celebrate Ascension. And we've got to enact the implications of the ascension. The problem in our culture today is we don't believe Jesus is ascended to the Father's right hand to rule over everything and to put everything under his feet. We just don't believe that. The ascension is the foundation of a truly Christian politics, you could say, a truly Christian society. A truly Christian society is going to be built on this truth that Jesus is Lord. And that will be the key to social flourishing. Because there's no other king so wise and loving as King Jesus. I'd much rather live under Jesus' reign than Allah's reign. Or the reign of some secular humanist, right? Jesus is a better king. Let's do things his way. Now, I realize when you, again, look at the darkness of the world around us, it sounds audacious to say that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now. Shouldn't we be locked up and put in straitjackets and put in the, you know, in the psych ward for saying this? No, this is reality. It's everybody else who's insane. Those who believe Jesus is King are the ones who are in touch with reality. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. It does sound crazy to say it, but it's true. If we are Christians, that is our faith, that is exactly our claim, and that is our joy. We don't just say Jesus is King, we celebrate it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit,